0: Um, right, let's turn to the book of Titus, please. A fabulous book. Um, it's very hard to read the book of Titus and not come away with some uh, very clear uh, challenge from the Scriptures about how we live. Uh, and we're going to be thinking about elders tonight, particularly on the, uh, the issue of, of elders. But if, if 95% of you think you can go to sleep, then you're wrong, Uh, and we'll explain why in a minute. But let's read the first uh, few verses, verse 5 through 9 of of Titus chapter 1. For this cause (coughs) left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain, or appoint, or point out elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop or an overseer must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre or base gain, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of of good men or good things, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayer give thanks for God's word Uh, that's before us this evening. Now, uh, as I'm sure you've already seen, the book of Titus is is really very directly getting at the issue of of how we live our lives. Very specifically, the question or the challenge is that salvation changes how we live. That is explicitly what Paul is writing about because he uses this term, uh, our, our saviour God. He uses it three times and then he focuses in on who our saviour God really is in, in verse 13 of chapter 2, uh, the great God and our saviour Jesus Christ. But, but he's talking about salvation, maybe not in the way that we think about it. We think of the day that we got saved and the Amen to that, the day that we trusted the Lord Jesus and we were forgiven from our sins and we were made righteous, positionally, fabulous. But when he speaks about our Saviour God, the first is, of course, in in verse verse 3, the commandment of God our Saviour. He has more specifically in mind the fact that he has saved us from the life we live to live a different kind of life. Uh, that we are lived, we are we're saved to live out the character of God now, not the character of our culture. Uh, I submit to you that's exactly what he's teaching. Without going too far out of my you know, you've you've hemmed me into four verses, and that, that that's just going to let me bounce all over the place, but I'm tempted to. But, but let me very quickly. Verse 12, of course, of chapter one tells us that the Cretans were liars, they were evil beasts, they were slow bellies or lazy gluttons. That's the three characteristics of of the Cretans. That was the population of Crete. Apply that to Aberdeen. I, I am not from Aberdeen. I wouldn't dare stand on the platform here and give you the three, the three characteristics of Aberdonians. I would never be back here nor anywhere else in the city. But... But take, take whatever you like about the three most negative characteristics of Aberdonians. He's writing to Christians, and this is the naturally the way they are. But he deliberately shows us that God our Saviour is different. So, for example, uh, very clearly in, in the first section, God our Saviour in verse 3 is the God who cannot lie, verse 2. Therefore, don't lie. The Christians are liars. But you don't lie. Why don't you lie? Because God doesn't lie. And He's your saviour God. Why, why, uh, why should you not be an evil beast? That is somebody who just maliciously damages things. Well, because chapter 3 tells us that, verse 4, that God our saviour is marked by, look at the lovely words of verse 4 chapter 3, kindness, and it's a specific word, it's the love of man, love towards men. So you don't, you don't go about just destroying and causing damage like an evil beast like the Christians do. That's what you used to do, but you're saved now. And so you reflect God's character. That means you show kindness. And you show love towards man when people are hateful and hating, as the end of verse 3 teaches. And then finally, uh, we have this whole idea of slow bellies or lazy gluttons. People who, people who were completely unconcerned about... About anyone else. This is the selfish, self interested, indulgent, uh, feed me and let me go to sleep type idea, right? Those was the Cretans, Can you imagine? I don't know if you've ever been holiday to Crete. I haven't. But uh, I think if I did, I would be looking around for these folks. That's what the character like was a couple of thousand years ago, anyway. But God our Saviour in chapter 2, uh, the one who's described as, as our Saviour God in verse 10 of chapter 2, God our Saviour is described as the God of grace, verse 11, the grace of God, the one who actively gives and does good to people. Now, this is So this is the opposite, right? We're called to live a different kind of life. We've been saved. Our Savior God has changed how we live. Specifically, that comes out in the book of Titus and in all the pastoral epistles with the idea of good works. Okay, good works. So you'll see that repeatedly, good works, good works, good works. Two different words for good one which fundamentally is the idea of that which is beneficial. Okay, it's, it's good for people. Like it has a beneficial effect. Uh, and the other is the word for beautiful. It's something that's attractive in itself. Uh, that God finds attractive and even sometimes men find attractive too. All right, good works. Now, but you could ask the question, what on earth is that? That's in the abstract, good works. You've been saved. Our saviour God has told us, uh, has changed us. He's made us different altogether. We are, we are those that have been saved and we are to do good works. In fact, the Lord Jesus went to the cross, verse 14 of chapter 2 tells us, that he might purify into himself a people of his own that were passionate about good works. So Christians ought to be concerned about good works and be passionate about them because it's the purpose of our saviour. Our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. They were passionate about good works, but what is it? Good works get a bad name because, of course, we preach in the gospel rightly, but you don't you don't do good works to get saved, right? Okay, but the Lord loves good works. It's all over the it's all over the pastoral epistles, right? So you can't you can't deny it. The Lord loves good works. So what what is good works? Well, I think as you start to get into the characteristic activities of elders you're starting to see a bit of a 3D, maybe a 4D model of what good works looks like. And that's why I said at the start that if you come to this meeting for interest's sake, so that you can get the friendly elders up against the wall afterwards and say, see, you should be like that. Okay, feel free to do that, of course. Elders uh, elders need to get that now and again, and we do. <laughs> but, but, But... but but every one of us ought to recognize that God doesn't have two standards of Christianity or holiness. So whilst these are qualities that are expected and required of those that lead God's people, the reason why they're here is this, that God's leaders are leading God's people to live more out of the character of God. So every one of these lands, with some reference at least, to every single Christian in the room. Here's a question. Would your life be any different. If God hadn't saved you. Because That's the challenge of the book. Paul says the Christians are like this. What are you like? Because our saviour God has changed everyone. Not just about our eternity. But our, our life now. You see, uh, maybe I don't know when you name children. M- maybe you don't uh, have quite the same culture as these folks had that they, they name their children very often with the the desire of the kind of goal of the child's life in the name. Uh, in fact, it's very interesting. at The end of Titus, you'll find. Look at look at verse thirteen of chapter three. You've got a lawyer. Can you believe that lawyers can be saved? Amen. Isn't that wonderful? Chapter three, verse thirteen. You would never have believed it if it wasn't for the Bible taught it. But you've got somebody called Zenos. That, that's somebody named after the god Zeus. That is the, that their parents wanted something of the attributes of the god Zeus to be reflected in their life. It's the same with uh, uh, the next boy, Apollos. And, and that's what the parents were wanting, something of the character of Apollos to be found in their life. So this is, this is Christianity. It's just far higher and far greater. That you are called upon to live out the character of God. There's no higher calling, Christian. And what does it look like? Well, our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, chapter 2, verse 13, is living like him. Uh, Right, so, uh, examples to be followed. And this is the point of the leader section that you have straight in front of you. Whenever you hit the start of the book of Titus, you immediately come into the issue of leaders and you have elders being Appointed, being pointed out, being recognised in in these uh, cities. So let's, we're going to think about three things tonight. We'll to think about that was introduction by the way. So we're on, we're on now the criticality of leaders, and then we're going to think about the confirmation or the creation of leaders uh, of elders, and then we're going to think about the characteristics of leaders from verse six through nine. So so verse five is kind of the criticality of the man. The confirmation or the creation of them, uh, and then we'll get onto these characteristics. Now, preaching lists is no fun, and it's not straightforward to listen to or to get interesting. So, we'll try and make it interesting, but it's uh, the last bit's going to be harder than the first bit. Is my suggestion? So, first of all, the need for the critical the, the need for them. <laughs> um, here's a question: Do you think your life would be any different? if you didn't have Christian leaders, elders. See, this is the point of their character being brought first before them, is the idea you're supposed to be able to look at them, follow them, and your life is shaped by them. Do you know, let me just say this, I I think your life is shaped by them, whether you realise it or not. It will be. We are very, very incapable of discerning just what it is that shapes our life. By the way, that's why any media is... It's dangerous, because we think we're clever enough to not be influenced by it, and we're absolutely wrong. 100% wrong. <laughs> okay, Because what we watch and what we're surrounded by is what we're shaped by. And, and therefore, if you're part of a local church and you have elders who lead you, who give instruction and guidance and direction and come into your life in different forms, you are being shaped by them. And that's good. Because they are a prototype. In lots of ways, they should be a prototype of what the Christians should be, and and they're also a preservative, a protection for the saints. They 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 allow the saints, and we'll come on to this later in the meeting, uh, to be safe as they as they live their Christian life because they have leaders that are are before them. So they're needed. You see, we had we have cities here in in verse five. I left you in Crete. To set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, uh, or establish elders in every city. Now, clearly, you have you have the word, the word "city" there. General for city, it can mean community, and and it seemed as if that in every place where there was a a work of the gospel that had been done, and there were there were Christians gathered, it seems it's possible to have an assembly without elders. That is, it can exist. But it can't prosper without elders. And that's why the call is made that, that Titus has to go at the direction of the apostle and he has to establish elders. He has to notice, set in order the things that are lagging. And linked with that is the establishing of elders. There, there's a, 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 an early work of God that's being done. Isn't it wonderful to see an early work of God? Soul saved. Uh, Christians' lives now different from those round about them. But of course, you can't expect newborn infants in the faith just to get up and run the Christian life like Usain Bolt, if he's still a thing. Right? Of course you can't. Okay, there's time for development and growth, and there are things that are lagging and there's problems. There's clearly false teachers around as well. You'll get onto that next next week, maybe. But but they're they need elders because this. This whole growth and protection that's required is going to be provided by and assisted by, by elders. So they're needed, all right? Notice it's elders in every city, every community. Elders, establishing elders plural in every city or community singular. Just notice that. That's the New Testament pattern, okay? Consistently. Consistently there are, there are elders plural in every local church singular. Uh, you go through Acts fourteen, clear as day. Okay, uh, coming back from the missionary journey, back through the the Christians just newly established, couple of years saved. They established the elders, pointed out elders in every assembly, singular elders, plural in each church, singular. Very simple, not hard. Uh, so they're needed. Okay, God, God is interested in the setting in order of local church testimony and Christian growth. That there are elders among God's people. They are needed. They're also described. And, and in fact, the description of them shows us the criticality of them. Okay, So there's three descriptions. In verse 5, we have the word elder, uh, which is there, establishing elders. It's the predominant term that's used actually in the whole New Testament. But in verse 7, we also have two other descriptions. We have verse 7, a bishop or an overseer. Uh, and also a third one, steward. A steward, the steward of God. So you, you have you have elder, you have overseer, and you have steward. Three of the four titles for these men, and they are all men, and they're all masculine. Don't be ashamed of that. The day in which we live, uh, it's God's purpose and it's God's plan that leadership is put into the hands of males. Uh, not because they are because they're smarter. Not because they are, uh, have better ideas. okay. It, it is the role that God has given to man, like he has given different roles to women. Okay? It doesn't change their value. It's not a value statement. It's a role statement. It's different. But there are four titles given. Three of them here. First is, is elders. And this tells us about a man of maturity. It's, it's, about, it's about maturity. The, the word means mature. Uh, we know from how it's used in the New Testament, but it, it doesn't mean old men always. Okay? Uh, so for example, in, in, in Acts 14, we just referenced it, we won't turn to it. But the people who were pointed out as elders could not have been more than two years saved. Okay? So so they, they weren't ancient in the faith, but they were spiritually mature relative to the company that they were among. Now this is now, isn't this wonderful, right, okay, that, that, that God wants his people to have those that are spiritually mature, lead them, that have a grasp of and an understanding of truth and of wisdom to bring to bear upon situations. You know, many, 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 many people have strong opinions. In fact, most Christians, in my experience, have strong opinions. Uh whether that is always allied with truth and with wisdom is a separate point. Okay, this is this is about maturity of understanding, of how to handle things, or how to spiritually deal with issues. And it's the predominant term that's used, elders. But secondly, we have uh, overseer, and this is the word in verse seven. Not a man of maturity now, but a man of activity. It's. It's the idea of the person who looks over, it's episcopos is, is the Greek word, it's literally looking over. It's the person who is, who is looking over the company, not standing over them, right, but looking over them. That is, he is one with a detailed interest in the saints, their well-being, their condition, their care. That means that it's someone who will be interested in how you're developing spiritually and they may ask you from time to time. Right? And don't get offended because it's their job. So, so they'll, they may ask you just how things are and they may probe a little bit and us in our uh, very enclosed British uh, mentality don't like that too much and the shields go up and you know, uh, shields are on maximum because uh, an elder's around uh, but actually, the point is that, that they're meant to be overseeing the flock, and they ought to be seeing when things are going wrong, indications where things aren't just as they should be, where food's required, where healing's required, a bit of binding up. So the, the overseer is the one who gives careful consideration to life and development and interest, because he's watching. But they're also stewards. Uh, this is the word in verse 7, the steward of God this is, this is the word for the, the house governor he was the slave that looked after all the rest of the slaves <laughs> just in case any of the overseers get any too big ideas of yourself <laughs> this, is, this is a, a lovely wow. term uh, it, it's the slave that looked after all the rest of the slaves uh, he was responsible to the master of the house uh, very often for all the possessions of, of the house uh, into their hand And the whole idea is a man not of of maturity or of activity but a man of responsibility. See, see, he's looking after all of these things for the master. Okay? The local church is not the elders, doesn't belong to them. The sheep are not the elders' sheep. They are the chief shepherd's sheep. Um, I was reading Exodus 34 yesterday, I think. And the Lord has a lot to say to the shepherds of Israel as he condemns them. And one of the things he keeps telling them is, they're my sheep. They're my sheep. They had failed in their handling of the people of God. And God says, remember, they're mine. And the steward idea is is just exactly that. Handling something that's not yours. Holding something which doesn't belong to you. And so God's put stewards in charge of his people to lead them, in the man of responsibility. Um, the one word that's missing here is the word shepherd or pastor, uh, but, but you find that in, in uh, several other passages. Uh, Acts 20, uh, for example, is quite clear that the elder is the overseer, is the shepherd pastor, same person. First uh, Peter chapter five, exactly the same. The the elder is the overseer, is the shepherd, pastor. Okay. Um, just to be clear, and not I don't want to be too critical, but sometimes terms are picked up, like the word bishop, right, was put here by King James to establish the Anglican order of things, right? Okay, it's not what the word means. <laughs> it means overseer. Okay, so people pick words and and make church structures and kind of back back interpret into the Bible church structures that they are used to and that they've set up Okay, it's not hard in the Bible to see that elders are overseers are shepherds, pastors to have any distinction between a pastor and a shepherd is just not biblical exposition All right, it's just not helpful because they are the same people Super clear, and if you read the commentaries on it, it just convinces you that's the case because the number of arguments I have to make to try and back out from what the clear text of the Bible says is quite amazing. Right? So so they are but the, he's he's the man now who shepherds, he's the man who cares for the sheep, as well as leading them. He's the one that, that tends them and feeds them. And we'll get onto that because the idea, in fact, of, of teaching and exhorting, etc., will come on to it's part of a shepherd's role. Okay? So Uh, Elder, overseer, steward Right, so that's the criticality of them You need them and Some of you might not like your elders Might think disaster But there you go You need them Whether you like them or not For your own good And believe me If you didn't have them You'd be an awful lot worse off So thank God for your elders. They will fail Okay Because they're just men The under shepherds aren't perfect The chief shepherd is But thank God for them so they're needed. The criticality of them quite clearly comes out in verse 5. Um, the confirmation or the creation of elders uh, is in the verse as well, because you have this whole idea of then being ordained. Now, again, again, King James stuck that in as well, right? Or ordaining. It's the idea of establishing or pointing out. Um, it is, the, it is the, a recognition of, of someone in this role as a leader among God's people. Now, three things happen in the Bible on this. I better not go too, uh, too long on this because I've, I've got a list to get to. But, but there are three things happen, three aspects to the process of recognition of elders uh, in the Bible. They are, they are made, and God does that. The Holy Spirit makes overseers. Acts 20. Okay? The Holy Spirit had made you overseers. So they're made by God. They are motivated by God because you, of course, have to desire the work of, of an overseer, 1 Timothy 3, if you're going to, to function as an overseer. Okay? You can't be conscripted. So they have to be motivated. But the third element of it is they have to be marked. They have to be marked out. And that's what you have here. And, and Titus is to establish elders just like Paul did in the missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, when they came back through and they went to the churches two years saved and considering who had made the spiritual progress and maturity among the saints, they, they marked out those that were to be recognized as elders. Okay, Now most of the work of a shepherd, of an elder, uh, is done and can be done in private. But it's not God's purpose that these men are undercover. They have to be out in front, literally. And so they are marked. They are marked by the existing elders. That's First Timothy chapter 5. Um, but they're also known by God's people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You have to know them that are over you. So you have to be recognized. And this happened here through Titus, who had a special role, of course, from Paul as some sort of delegate with authority given to him to, to make this uh, public. Um, to quote Bailey, the risen head gives the men, the Holy Spirit equips the men, and the spiritual among the saints recognize the men. I don't think there's any elder ever been recognized in any church, but some of the flock will say, I don't like them" or I don't want them." okay? Remember this, that's why that quote at the end is really important. They're recognized by the spiritual, among the flock there'll always be somebody who they're not your favorite that 's not the point this isn't about your voting for your favorite for the management committee. This is about recognizing a work of God and it has to be done prayerfully and it has to be done carefully so so they are God titus isn't asked to make elders he 's asked to establish elders, and it 's in every city as we've said every community. So, so, so this process has to be done. If any of you have been through that process of uh, a local church recognizing new leaders, it's very difficult. It has to be handled carefully. You know, some of the most... You go through the Old Testament and you'll find this, that the change of leadership among God's people is some of the most difficult and dangerous times for the people of God. It's very destabilising. So a lot of care, a lot of patience, a lot of prayer required... ...when elders are recognised. But it's part of what we ought to do... ...and need to do as God's people. it's a serious business. I uh, mean, the Lord help us as and when that's required in local churches. Right, on to the characteristics of leaders. So we have uh, verse 6... Um, ...through verse 9 to deal with. And um, you'll find straight away... ...that, that the characteristics... Uh, it, it, ...as you look at them broadly... ...and these qualities of this, uh, of this person... You see straight away that there's a responsibility element. Uh, you see, he represents God. That's part of what he does. He is leading the people, but he represents God. And that's why the idea of being the steward of God um, and this whole idea of blamelessness will come on to stands out. But he also has to relate to God. People, there's a relational element to, uh, to these people because you see, all over this list is the idea of interaction with people. Um, This is not an ivory tower theologian that's being looked for, okay? Someone who represents God but has to relate to people. But God doesn't say anything in this list about intelligence, about education, about human talents, or any qualification. Now again, I'm not going to underscore this too much, but I will say this quite clearly. But I think it is a sad indictment on Christian testimony when you see leadership roles advertised or referenced and doctoral qualifications are required to get in. (laughs) That's a long way from the New Testament people. Now, now it's not that people shouldn't be qualified, because we're about to go through the list. (laughs) Okay? But formal theological training is not what's referenced here. Now I know it didn't exist, okay? And I'm not going to have have a go about it. I'm not saying you. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it if you're interested and you've got time and a whole lot of money. Uh, but what I'm saying is this: is to make that a qualification to lead God's people. Is to go way beyond the Bible. Right. Three areas of qualities. You've got public qualities in verse 6 through the beginning of verse 7. You've got personal qualities through the middle of verse 7 through verse 8, and then you've got protective qualities which are in verse 9. Okay, so so public, personal, and protective qualities of these of these people. Uh, and let's apply them to ourselves as we go through. So first of all, public qualities, verse 6 through the beginning of verse 7. They ought to be blameless. Comes out twice. Look at verse 7. A bishop must be blameless. Or someone who is free from all charge against him. That's the idea. There is no charge can be made publicly of a reproach upon this man's character. No open outward sin. Uh, It's like the idea of being accused. Uh, in the Bible, um, the word Pilate used in John 18, of the Lord's charge. Um, but remember that the Lord was charged, and it was a completely false charge. Okay. These men are out in front, okay, and it's quite possible that they will have allegations lodged against them. They're not disqualified for being leaders of God's people just because there's a charge against them. There has to be some basis to it. There is no basis for a charge publicly in terms of sin. This is the idea that, that he's a man free of justifiable public reproach. And that's really broad. In all areas of life, I'm reminded of Daniel when they wanted to find something on him and they searched through the records of his decades of service in the empire of Babylon. <laughs> See if any kind had of been dodgily... Applied or any gold had gone the wrong way and they found nothing. Okay, that's the idea blameless, no ability to make a charge that has any standby whatsoever. And it's the overarching qualification, public qualification, but it's immediately linked in verse 6 with what is a, a family and a, a, a a relationship qualification: the husband of one wife and having faithful children, and it's the children who are not accused of riot or unruly. So, so you've now got blameless, and you've got this this husband of one of one wife. Now the commentaries go on for like pages on this. All right, okay, and everyone's got their specialist meaning for it. Of what it is, the most popular one today is that he was, he's only. He's only married once, not divorced fourteen times or whatever. Uh, is what's in most of the commentaries, uh, uh, or that that it's uh, polygamy in some way? Is that is the idea of having two wives or more than two wives? Can I suggest we have to read the Bible, compare the Bible with the Bible? Okay, First Timothy chapter five tells us that 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 the qualification to be on the list of widows. Requires that someone is a wife of one husband. <laughs> now, now, this can't mean that that somehow if your wife dies you can't marry again. Because the Bible's super clear on that, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. So ruling that out. All the whole idea of divorce and multiple marriages and polygamy and all the rest of it is completely, I think, overturned by First Timothy chapter five because in the culture, well, men did have several wives and did have multiple post-divorce husbands. It was extremely rare for a wife to be in that position, and the same is used of the female in First Timothy chapter five. So I am, I am very happy that it's the idea of fidelity and the idea of a one-woman man, because I think that's exactly what's being called out here: someone who has absolute public recognition that there's only one woman for him. Okay? That there's a fidelity in relationship. Isn't that a challenge in itself? Everyone who's in a relationship, marriage relationship here, does the world know, and does everyone know that your spouse is absolutely it, 100% no questions. You're completely devoted there's no questionable remarks, there's no dubious asides, no indications of flirtatious glances or conversations, right? Super clear. Fidelity in relationship. And the man who leads God's people needs to be like that. See, it comes with trustworthiness, because that whole relationship involves promises. And if, if you're not going to be taking your promises to your spouse seriously... Well, can you really be trusted to lead God's people? <laughs> Similarly, you have this idea of of the of the, the the having faithful children, and again, lots and lots of things are written about it. Um, uh, if Paul had meant this to mean saved children, he could have just said that really easily. It's not hard. The word faithful is used everything. We've got the faithful word in verse verse nine. Okay. And, and therefore, I don't think this has anything to do with, with saved children. It's, it's the idea of children who are believing or they are faithful. It's the idea of children who who recognise their father, his responsibility and his leadership. It's just parallel, I think, to 1 Timothy chapter 3 about the order of your home. That if you can't take care of your own house, how can you take care of God's? That's, that's all that's here is that if you've got children who have no respect for their father, are riotous and unruly uh, in the home, uh, and the public sees that, um, how can someone who does that, who lives like that and leads like that, lead God's people? Okay, so, so I think comparing scripture with scripture, you have the idea of devotedness and fidelity, blamelessness, devotedness. And a, and a household that is in order. Okay? That's the public aspect of, of this man. And you know what we do is good just to recognize that should mark all of our lives. Okay? Blamelessness and devotion and order in our home. Right, now we've got personal qualities. Uh, five negative, six positive. I'll deal with these fairly fairly quickly, and you can consider them in your own in your own time no doubt, because they're fairly straightforward to get your head around. Um, This man has to work with other people. (laughs) He has to be able to draw alongside other people, and and therefore these these personal qualities are required because he's not the boss that sits and issues instructions from his office. He's not the managing director who makes calls and doesn't have to deal with the people. He's among God's people as a shepherd. He is with them. He has to explain to them and teach them. He has to direct them and guide them. He has to cry with them. And that involves personal qualities that are required for that to be able to happen properly. And so you have this list. So the first one's really interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Bishop must be blameless. Overseer must be blameless. Steward of God. Right. Five negatives. Not self-will. Derby has it. Not Not headstrong. Not the kind of person who asserts their own rights. Okay? That's a danger, by the way, as those that come into leadership, is is that their rights and what they want think, thinks that should be demand that should be able to be demanded. Okay? It's very interesting that it's put here first in the list of personal qualities, not headstrong. Not self will. No abiding anger. That's the idea of not soon angry. It's the idea of an ongoing, agitated, abiding condition. It's not just like outbursts of anger. It's the idea of somebody who's like just kind of like on the edge the whole time. You ever, you ever met anybody like that? There's a underlying anger. It's <laughs> like if you poke them in the wrong place, it will come out, right? Yeah, you some of you, some of you're nodding away. You, I can't see your faces, but some of you are nodding. Knowing you know, you've known some of those, yeah, right. Well, elders shouldn't be like that that you're scared to go near them because they might go off like Vesuvius. Well, no abiding anger. Not near wine. kind of speaks for itself. Uh, Stay clear of that which will not help you in making judgments and in living your life in a way that is ordered. Uh, So, uh, not near wine. No smiter. Always linked with wine. Um, The idea of punching people or the idea of being physically violent. Uh, You see, the... You're sitting here in League, all kind of, you know, can you imagine our elders swaying at people? Right? Can't imagine it, can you? But well, I hope you can't imagine it. Um, but remember, I was about to say these were real people that got saved. Your elders are real people too. Right? But what I mean is, these are people, maybe not long saved at all, who would have dealt with things, you know, evil, evil beasts. Some of them just getting things done meant swinging a fist or two. And it's like, and in the culture that would have been pretty much okay. You can't live like that. All right, so no swinging fists, no smiter. And finally, not greedy for money, uh, filthy looker. No, no sordid desire, no passion for, for wealth. <laughs> so you've got to keep an eye on that. All right, so, so you get the idea. Just look at those yourself and say, am I anything like that? Uh, but then there's six positive things. I like that. Five negative, six positive. Um, he says, y- you have now to be, looking, Titus, you're looking for men with these qualities. You're looking for men who love strangers. The idea of lover of hospitality. Love strangers. This is the, the people who are fond of guests. Their, their home is open. They might need to get a revolving door fitted uh, in the home because people are there the whole time. Now that's good, isn't it? Because you can do a lot. Like, I love meetings, right? Love meetings. I love long meetings. They've gone for ages, right? Not everyone does. But I, I like long meetings. But not all of the work of God is done at meetings of course a large, large part of it will be done in homes why so homes have to be protected and led and, and, and therefore a lover of strangers someone who will be open to strangers is part of, is part of leadership um, you see it speaks well of God and it speaks of God's character when your life and your home is open to those you don't know and it at least should be open to God's people. When your home's not open to God's people, something's wrong. Remember, they're all family, all right, okay? Uh, I don't have time for a science, but um, I'm giving you one anyway. You see, there's probably not many people here that a family member wouldn't come to the door and just walk in. Probably not. Maybe you, maybe you strictly depend. The in-laws are different. But, but, uh, but your blood family, you would want them to be you know, welcome just to walk in. That should be the case for your spiritual family too, really, shouldn't it? That's the local church describing exactly those terms. You'll um, you'll see that in the pastorals. That's how we ought to be. In fact, that's what the idea in First Timothy of the household of God is. Yes, it has temple connotations, of course it does, but it has it's far broader than that because it immediately in Chapter Four goes straight into the whole idea of the house. Of the older and the younger, right Male, female, the gathers, the whole idea of the household it is the family. That's what the local church would be. So um, so a lover of strangers. Uh, also a lover of good uh, or good men or good things. Somebody who is delighted and appreciative of that which is good, loving to do good, loving good being done, loving about hear, hearing about good things being done and good. Right? A lover of good. One who is sober or, or thinking straight, a disciplined mind. Someone who is, the whole idea always has the idea of the mind is of the passions being curbed and restrained. It's the idea of a, of a devotion to that which is if, anything but reckless and free-spirited. See, if you've got free-spirited elders, you've got a problem, right? I know that's celebrated today, <laughs> but, but, but you want leaders... Who are disciplined in their mind, who, who are thinking through the consequences, not just seeing what happens. And we'll try this and see what happens. No, no. So, studying the Bible, being careful, and, and considering things and thinking straight. Then those that are, are upright, they're just, straight, doing what is right according to a standard. And those that are, are holy unpolluted in their life. Uh, And then the whole idea of of being temperate or controlled. Um, You know, self-control, some of the translations say it's of course it's always spirit control. It's the idea of a life that is uh, dominated by God, not by self and by passions. Okay, so you get the idea of this person. Here's the personal qualities. And you know you can get on with this person, alright? You know, you, you, you read First Corinthians, right, and you read Paul's words, and you could kind of think Paul was a bit scary. Some of you think he, he was. The saints love them, and they love them. And he tells us the second and he wrote that letter crying. Okay. So you can be straight and direct and clear, and you can handle error and handle false teachers and handle saints that are wandering with a sure hand and with a steady. Real understanding that things have to be done in order among God's people. It's not a case of being nice all the time. right? If your elders are nice all the time, there's something wrong with that. Because things are serious need to be dealt with. But there's personal, warm... You could get on with this person, couldn't you? You could come to them. You would know that you would get help from them. And their personal qualities don't get in the way of... In fact, they encourage Christian fellowship and development. Okay, that's the idea. So public qualities, personal qualities, and finally, I'm nearly in time, protective qualities. Uh, And this will come into more clarity in your next session, but just notice in verse 9, they have to hold fast or they have to cling to the faithful word. The word that is trustworthy, the word that can be depended upon, like the children of the elder, As he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayer. Now this tells us that one of the, the, well, you've got a gainsayer, okay? (laughs) So you've got somebody who speaks against, that's literally what it means. Somebody who is contradictory. So there's truth being taught and someone saying no. It's not right. That's not true. And again, you don't live in an environment where people, well, no one stood up tonight and said, that's not true, that's nonsense, right, okay? But I think there was more fluidity in some of the New Testament church meetings. I think there were some folks in that you wouldn't maybe expect to be in there and things said, well, we know that from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. You know, if anyone stands up and says, anathema, Jesus, can you imagine imagine that happening in your meetings? Uh, No, (laughs) generally. But it does happen in other places, in places where things are more um, free form, where where people are coming and going, and where things are in open places. And there are those that are against gain saying, but but when that happens, who's going to stand up? Who's going to stand up and say no? The elders are okay. Now they need to be able to see one of one of the key uh, distinguishing features: when an elder and a deacon in First Corinthians Chapter in First. Timothy chapter 3, is that an elder is apt to teach, has a capability to teach. Now, it doesn't mean that they are the world's best Bible teacher. It doesn't mean that they're like, you know, an internet sensation, okay? What it means is they're able to take the Bible and to apply it to God's people and, and in the language of verse 9, as they have been taught, use sound doctrine to exhort and convince. See, See, it's not a case of just... uh, Anyone can stand up and say, we don't believe that. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) But that's not not what he's being told to do. Look, he has to exhort and convince the gainsayer. There is to be a coming alongside, It's the word exhortation, and a convincing of fault. So it's the ability to take sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, and to, to take those that are wrong... And they're contradicting, whether publicly or privately, and bring them to an understanding of truth. So elders have to know the Bible. I heard of a church once, uh, a local assembly, like, like you would know in lots of different ways. And basically what happened is that the men, the men became elders just as they got old. Okay, and, uh, and I remember speaking to one of them, and he said, look, I, I don't meet the qualities here, but I'm just trying to help out. Okay, and it was an admirable uh, brother just trying to help out um, this isn't something for people just to help out in okay? it involves the understanding of doctrine it involves the understanding of truth now again, the fact that in First Timothy chapter 5 there are those who give themselves to the study of doctrine particularly doesn't mean that the rest of the elders aren't teachers there's an expectation for teaching ministry among those who lead God's people, in some capacity, publicly because that's what First Titus one nine says. It's a public statement because God's people have to be led by those that can deal with the Bible. See, this this is this is fundamental. It's not about keeping a tradition going. Well, you know, well, the past generation did this, so you'll do that as well, and I'll lead you there. It's not about. Telling them what the rules are, the new COVID rules, if there are any. I don't know what they are these days. Um, over the end of COVID rules. But it's not, about, it's not about administrative issues. It's about being able to direct God's people. And, and if you don't know the Bible, you can't do that. So you always have to study the Bible. They need time to do so. They need wives that are willing to help them in the issue of hospitality because most of them can't cook. And most of them wouldn't know how to start to make a home like a home that people want to come into but the issue is this, that here's a man who will be an example for God's people to follow. Now here's the thing. If your elders live like that, and I'm sure they do to some degree or other, right? I know some of them quite well, and I know they do. <laughs> the call for God's people is follow them, okay? God saved you, but more than that, he's given you examples of the kind of Christian you ought to be. So be thankful for that love them and follow them and help them and try not to be the most awkward sheep, at least be second or third most awkward sheep as, 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 as you, they lead you on in the Christian pathway on to glory. Right, we're five minutes late, but that's, what, that's closing prayer. Our gracious God and our Father, we are very thankful for, for the fact that we've been saved and we've sang tonight about our Saviour. Uh, every one of us spoke to Thee and lifted our voice and declared that our Saviour has done great things for us. And our God, tonight we're being reminded from Thy word that it ought to be so clear in how we live. Our God, make our lives more beautiful. In the sight of God, we pray, and make them more beneficial to men. May the good works of our lives be expressed and seen in the kind of qualities and character and actions and lives that we've just thought about this evening. We pray particularly for the elders among the saints here. Uh, Our God, give them good help in the work that is laid to their hands. It is hard uh, and it involves so much difficulty in different ways, but the Lord is gracious, and we pray that God would give them help as they lead God's people. Um, so we give thanks, and we just commit ourselves to the in the most precious name of the Chief Shepherd, the Good Shepherd, and the Great Shepherd of the Sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.